0: Take out your Bibles, turn to Philippians chapter 3, page 981. This morning we're going to be looking at verses 10 and 11. Context, verse 1 of chapter 3. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. Finally, my brothers, our final sermon on this wonderful passage. Six weeks in 3, 1 through 11. We could do a whole lot more, but I will have mercy on you and I will spare you. We're going to finish it up today. We've seen that this passage is all about righteousness. It's there in verse 9. Paul has shown has his own self-righteousness, his own credential righteousness in verses 5 and 6, his spiritual resume, but then how that is nothing. It's loss. It's trash. Everything that he thought qualified him, that proved he was good, that proved he was spiritual, that proved he deserved heaven and deserved God, it says everything that he was putting confidence in, It was all rubbish. It was all loss. But that's all right because of the gospel, because of the good news that the very thing that God requires of us is also the very thing that he provides for us. God is righteous. You have to be righteous to be with him. You are not righteous, but God. But God provides a righteousness not of our own, but the righteousness from God that depends on faith. The righteous God who requires righteousness to be in relationship with him gives to us, gifts to us, the very righteousness we need to be in relationship with him. Thus, it is only by grace received through faith that we can be right. Righteousness is really important. But it's not just righteousness for righteousness sake. Righteousness is not the end. The point is not that we would just be right. But that we would be right with and right with so that we can be with the point of righteousness is relationship. That's the key. The point of righteousness is relationship. And that's what we looked at all last week. Look at verse eight. Paul wants righteousness so that he may gain Christ. Because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, his Lord. That's what this is all about. It's all about knowing Christ. That's what life is about, knowing Christ. That's the best thing that you could ever know, Christ. And that's where you will find joy. That's Paul's main argument. Verse 1, rejoice. Verse 8, knowing Christ is of surpassing worth. Therefore, joy, rejoice, is found as possible only in knowing Christ. And then guess what? Verse 10, Paul is not done talking about knowing Christ. He is desperate for the gracious gift of righteousness that he needs. Verse 10, that purpose statement, that I may know him. But that raises a question. Look at 8 and look at 10. We have knowing Christ in both. Do both mean the same thing? Is Paul talking about the exact same thing in verse 8 and verse 10? Well, actually, not exactly. He he can't be. Look at verse 8. We've seen Paul willing to count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. He repeats and explains himself in the second part of 8. I will joyfully count it all loss that I may gain Christ. So Paul there in 8 equates knowing Christ with gaining Christ. Has Paul gained Christ? Of course he has. So in that sense, he knows Christ. 1-1. One, one. He's a servant of Christ. one twenty one To live is Christ. one twenty three For him to die, to depart, is to be with Christ. Paul has gained Christ. Therefore, Paul does know Christ. How? How does the one who confesses himself in 1 Timothy 1.15, to be the chief of... Of sinners gain Christ. That's verse 9. The righteousness from God by grace through faith. In other words, sinful Paul is counted righteous. Not because of anything that he did. But because of everything that Christ did. The righteousness of Christ is then credited to Paul's account. Thus, Paul in Christ, clothed in Christ's righteousness. Sinful Paul is now declared to be righteous. Which is to say that Paul is justified. So, in verse 8, to know Christ is to gain Christ. To gain Christ is to be found in him. And to be found in him is to be declared righteous. In verse 8, knowing Christ is justification. Remember justification, the once for all declaration of God that we are counted righteous. We need righteousness to be with a righteous God. In justification, he declares that we are righteous. Paul has that. He knows Christ. But then all of a sudden, verse 10, he wants to know Christ. But he does know Christ already. What does he mean? Just that he wants to know him more Sure, in a sense, but it means more than that. My goal this morning is to show you how in verses 10 and 11, Paul speaks of knowing Christ now, not in terms of justification, but in terms of sanctification. We're talking today about sanctification. You know, big, fancy words. They're not complicated. I'll keep defining them. Justification is a work of God's free grace, whereby He forgives, He pardons all of our sins, and He accepts us as righteous. That's verse 9. But that's not all that God does. Salvation is not just justification, it's also sanctification. What is that? It, too, is an act of God's free grace, whereby we are renewed After the image of God, and we are made more and more to die to sin and live to righteousness. That's verse 10. Verse 8, God counts us righteous, justification. Verse 10, God makes us righteous. Justification, God accepts us. Sanctification, God changes us. And that's what Paul wants in verse 10. That's what he wants to know in verse 10. So here's what I want you to know today. Here's why we are here this morning. We're trying to more fully understand what it means to know Christ. Here's what we're going to argue. To know Christ is to be like Christ. That's what we're talking about in verse 10. But to be like Christ, we're going to see our need to then know and have resurrection power. But then we're going to see how resurrection power and to know that is actually to suffer and to die. Those are going to be our three points. Main idea. Communion with Christ requires conformity to Christ. To know Christ requires being like Christ. Christ. Look at the title there. I was proud of this. I was having fun with it. Like Christ. Not meaning you need to like him so that then you can love him. But no, like Christ, meaning we need to be like Christ so that we can then better love Christ. Right? Communion is going to involve conformity. How is knowing Christ, which is of surpassing worth, experienced now in our lives, in our day-to-day experience? That's what Paul's answering in verses 10 and 11. How do you respond now to the received righteousness that has resulted in relationship with God? What does that look like to know Christ in your day-to-day life? Experience. Well, let's read and see what he says. Again, it's such a good passage, and I'm sad to be leaving it. Uh, We're going to read the whole thing one last time, just to get the whole thing in your brain, and then you won't hear from it again for a while. But it's so good. I'm going to read all of you, uh, all of Philippians 3, verses 1 through 11. But our focus this morning is going to be on verses 10 and 11. This is what God wants to say to you this morning. Finally, my brothers... Rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me, and it's safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision, who worship by the Spirit of God, and glory in Christ Jesus, and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more I may attain the resurrection from the dead. If you would, bow with me, and let's begin with a word of prayer. Father, we're thankful for your word. Father, I'm thankful, excited, and humbled by the privilege of preaching your word. Father, I pray that I would find no confidence in myself, no confidence in my preparation, no confidence in my own abilities, That I would find great confidence in you and in your word, and in your grace, and in your mercy. Father, I want to know Christ. Father, I want to be like Christ. Father, I want that for every person in this room. I want them to want that. Father, every single one of us has been very unlike Christ many times this week. Father, show us the goodness of holiness, the goodness of purity, and the goodness of being conformed into the image of your Son. Use this word now to plant within us a desire to be like Christ and to better know him. Father, help the preaching of your word. Help the hearing of your word. We ask, we pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right. um, My wife is teaching kids this morning, which means I'm a little more free to talk about her. Um, So the deal is you don't tell her what I say. Uh, By the grace of God, we argue very little. Uh, that's not a testimony to me, but to her. Uh, the only thing we really argue about are traveling and packing to travel. Every time. She's, not rightly, she's rightly not the biggest fan of my aggressive driving, and so I get that. I struggle to get it in the midst of the, the heat of the moment. Um, but anyways, we don't argue a lot, praise God. We do love to argue about silly things. Like colors, for instance. One of us is colorblind. Uh, the jury is still out. who it is. Uh, We also argue about married couples. This is one of her favorites. Melissa loves the idea that married couples uh, start to look like each other. I think that's ridiculous. But there actually was a study years ago, though not everyone agrees with the conclusions, I don't, um, but the study claims that this actually does physically happen. The argument kind of goes that as couples spend more and more time with each other, to the exclusion of other people, they're spending the most time with this one person and thus looking at this one person far more than anyone else, the the more that they look and gaze and see they then very subtly begin to mimic the same facial movements. And then as they mimic those same facial movements over and over and over again, those same muscles start to shape and start to form, and then they actually kind of start to progressively look a little bit more like each other. I don't buy it, it's interesting, but I love my wife, I look at her a lot, Uh, I stare at her, Uh, I see her react in certain ways, then I start to kind of react similarly. And Melissa loves to make this little pouty lip thing. Uh, I had once, I had never once for the 23 years of my life before I met her felt the need to make a pouty lip. Um, but every time she feigns sadness or she sees something cute or our daughters do something, she does this little pouty lip. Well, now what do I instinctively want to do every time I think something is cute? I start to make, I'm not going to do it, but I start <laughs> to make this same silly little pouty lip, right? I can't. Help it. I've seen her do it so many times. I love her. So I just naturally started to mimic her behavior. And the theory of this study is that as you both do these exact same movements over and over and over again, your faces begin to kind of suddenly start to take on the same shape and look more similar. Their constant communion results in close conformity. Right? Their affinity. Results in similarity. Look at verse 10. Look at the beginning and the end of verse 10. Paul says, that I may know him, and then explains that in part at the end as becoming like him. A key part of knowing Christ is being like Christ. Paul is not here just expressing a desire for more information about Christ. He is expressing here a desire, a longing to be more like Christ. He is not in any way questioning his justification. He is longing for a deeper experience of his sanctification. We've talked a lot about the difference between knowing about and knowing of. Paul doesn't want to just know. He wants what he knows then to affect him and shape him, and change him. He wants this knowledge of Christ to lead to a love of Christ, which then leads to a life for Christ. He wants to be so consumed with Christ that it changes everything about who he is and what he does. And think back to our righteousness discussion a couple weeks ago. God is righteous. To be in relationship with him, you must be righteous. I'm not just making that up. 1 Peter 1.18, New Testament. Quoting Leviticus 11.44, Old Testament. You shall be holy, for I am holy. Jesus, Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5.48. You therefore must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. This morning in Sunday school, we looked at the fifth beatitude. Matthew 5.8, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Implication? Others won't. Why is it only the pure in heart? Well, it's because God is pure. He is perfectly holy. So Hebrews 12, 14, Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. Like demands like. To know God, one must be like God. Resemblance is required for relationship. Righteousness is for relationship. To be with the righteous God, we must be righteous. So that's what we've looked at in great detail. In Christ, by grace, God declares us to be righteous, but he doesn't leave it at that. He is also in the process of making us righteous. That's sanctification. God is making us into, he is making us to match what it is that he has declared about us in justification. And this is the great goal of our salvation. Ultimately, it is to glorify God by being like God and then being with God and enjoying God. The surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. But I'm trying to make the case now that to know him, You have to be like him. And good news, this is what God is doing in us and through us. This is the good work that Paul has already said in chapter 1, verse 6, uh, that when God begins it, he will bring it to completion. This is what Paul prays for in chapter 1, verse 10, that they would be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. Verse 11, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. This is Romans 8.29. We love focusing on the theology of Romans 8.29. We love using it as as a proof text for Calvinism. And yes, God does foreknow and predestine. That's just what the verse says. And praise God that he does that, because we'd be doomed without it. Praise God that it's grace from the very beginning, even before the very beginning, all the way to the end. That's my only hope. But why did he foreknow and predestine us? Paul tells us, not so that you could win arguments, it's to be conformed to the image of his son. That's what God's doing. God elected us, he chose us, he saves us, and that saving us includes making us like Jesus. It's making us holy. Pure in heart, he's fixing us, making us new, getting rid of all the bad stuff, the evil that remains, all the doubt, the anger, the fear, the grumbling, the disappointment, the dissatisfaction, all those things that are opposed to him and that he hates, that we should hate, those things that make us unfit for him, he's making us fit. He's preparing us for him, making us like him. The love of Christ leads to love for Christ, which will lead to a life like Christ. Christ Christ's love leads to Christ-likeness. We're seeing that communion with Christ leads to conformity to Christ. The more I'm with my uh, superior-to-me wife, the more like her I become. The more we are with our infinitely superior Savior, the more like Christ we become. Paul wants to know him, and that includes becoming like him. Paul wants to be sanctified. But hold on. We just spent an entire point on how knowing Christ is being like Christ, on how this verse is about sanctification. But how do we know that's what he's saying? Remember, my points are supposed to come out of the text. My words are supposed to reflect God's words. How do we know that Paul here is talking about sanctification? look at 10 again. Look at what he wants to know. He wants to know him, and then he expounds upon and explains what he means by this. He wants to know him and the power of his resurrection. Point number two, to be like Christ is to know or is to need resurrection power. But still, what does the resurrection have to do with sanctification? How do we know that Paul here is talking about that? Well, when we hear resurrection, we understandably think of physical resurrection. We think of our future uh, physical bodily resurrection when Christ returns. I want to argue that that is not what Paul is talking about here. He says resurrection in 10. He says resurrection again in verse 11. And I believe that he's talking about the same things in both. Notice that he's definitely not talking about his future bodily resurrection in verse 10. He can't be. He wants to know the power of Christ's resurrection. Why? For what purpose does Paul want this power? What is power? Power is simply the ability to do something. It's the capacity or the ability to accomplish something. What is this power to do or accomplish? We almost can't help but think of power in terms of gain or success or advancement for us. I want more power in the gym, in part to demonstrate my own greatness. You want power to demonstrate that you've got your life together, that you don't need anybody else, or you want power to advance at work, or to make more money, or to improve your lot in life. We've got Philippians 4.13 out right on the board over there in the garden. which is one of the best verses, but one of the most misused verses In the bible i can do all things through him who strengthens me you know what that word is in the greek uh, who strengthens me it's this same word it's this word power through him who fills me with power through him who gives me power and so seth curry writes it on his shoe right i can do all things through him who gives me strength Uh, every athlete tries to use uh, this verse. i can drain threes from half court and win nba championships because of Philippians 4:13, uh, I read an interview with Curry. He says the void. He writes this verse because it drives him to achieve greatness. But is that what this verse is about? Is that really what Paul is saying? This power is for Philippians 4:13. We'll do it, and ex- we'll do it long, a lot, in a couple of weeks. No, that's not what he's saying. In Philippians 4:13, Paul is saying that he can suffer. He's saying that he has the power and the ability to suffer that he can go without, that he can be content in any situation because he has Christ. The power is not about him accomplishing great things. It's not he can do anything he puts his mind to. And so that can't be what the power in chapter 3, verse 10 is for either. So it's not for us and our greatness and our advancement so we can accomplish and do all these wonderful things. So what is the power of the resurrection for? We've already read it. Actually, we're paying attention. We try to kind of tie the service together sometimes. Romans 6, we've already read the answer. Go there again if you'd like. Page 942. Romans 6, 942. This is like the sanctification chapter. Paul there is answering the question. He's just 1 through 5, 1 through 3, he's just laid out the problem. No one is righteous. You're all sinners. You all deserve to die. None of you qualify for God. This is what Paul is dealing with. This is what the Christian life is about. This is uh, how can unrighteous man stand before a righteous God? Paul lays out the problem one through three, second half of three through five. He gives the solution by grace. It's the righteousness that we've already looked at, uh, given to us by uh, the grace of God through Jesus Christ. So now he's answering the question, hey, if it really is all grace... If it's all what God does for us in Christ, well, then can we continue in sin? Of course not, Paul says. Verse 3. Look at verse 3 of chapter 6. We're going to come to this in a second. We have been baptized into the death of Christ. What does this baptism represent? Verse 4. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised... From the dead, that's resurrection. What's the outcome of this resurrection? What's its effect on us that we too might walk in newness of life? Notice, Not that we will be resurrected in the future. We will, of course, but that's not what he's talking about here. He's talking about us walking in newness of life. That's holiness. That's purity. That's righteousness. That's Christ-likeness. Paul's making the case here in Romans 6, and he's doing the same thing in Philippians 3, that resurrection is for sanctification. Look at verse 5 of Romans 6. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Again, that includes our physical bodily resurrection, of course, praise God. But that's not Paul's focus right now. How does he apply this fact of our resurrection? Look at verse 6. Our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Again, verse 7. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Again and again, he emphasizes this. Verse 8. We will live with him. What's that mean? Verse 11. So you must also consider yourselves dead dead to sin, and now alive to God in Christ. Application summary, verse 13. Therefore, present yourselves to God as those brought from death to life. Resurrection, what does that look like? How does that apply? Present your members to God as instruments for righteousness. You see that resurrection is for righteousness. When Paul says that he wants to know the power of Christ's resurrection, he means the sanctifying power of Christ's resurrection. He means the sin-killing and sin-conquering power of Christ's resurrection. Paul wants to live that out. He wants to live out what is true, that he's no longer enslaved to sin. Christian, praise God. If you are in Christ... You are no longer enslaved to sin. One of the first things we need to realize in our fight against sin and your fight against whatever that lingering thing is that you're struggling with is that you can change. It's possible. You have the power to do that. Not because you're so great in power and you can do it. No, but because Christ is in you. And you are dead to sin now and alive to righteousness. And he can work in you and for you. And so you can stop looking at pornography. You can stop stealing. Uh, You can stop abandoning that relationship. You can stop being a jerk. Whatever the thing is for you. We have the power in Christ through the resurrection to be changed and to be new. And that's what Paul wants. He is no longer enslaved to sin. Praise God. Also, by the way, if you're not a Christian, if you're not in Christ, that means that you are enslaved to sin. It's your master. You cannot not do it. And the wages of that sin, Romans tells us, what we earn, what we deserve with that sin is death. You will justly die for your sin. Sin separates us from the holy God who is goodness and life. Therefore, sin gets us death. That's what we, all of us, deserve. But for those who are in Christ, that's not what we get. We get life. That's why Christ came, to die so that you could live. He came to take your place and to take your sin. And in dying for you, paying the penalty for your sin, God could now declare unrighteous you to be righteous because of Christ. And not only declare you righteous. He doesn't leave it there. But in raising you to newness of life, in giving you a new heart, and in indwelling you and empowering you with his spirit, he is also making you righteous. And that's what Paul wants. That's what the resurrection is about in these verses. He wants to know Christ, he knows that sin hinders that. He knows that the more like Christ he is, the more he can know and love Christ. And since he wants nothing more than to know and to love Christ, he wants nothing more than to be more and more sanctified. In making Christ his all-consuming passion, Paul also then makes holiness his all-consuming passion. Is holiness, our all-consuming passion. Do we see the beauty of it? Do we see the goodness of it? Do we long to be pure? Do we, do we long for our sin to be gone? If we love Christ, we will. If we long for him, we will long to be like him. And we will long to live a manner of the life worthy of his gospel. Is that your desire? John Owen, the great English Puritan, I sent out his book on Thursday, Communion with God. It's $6 on Amazon. Get it and read it. But in it, he writes this. He says, a sense of need is the spring of desire. I love that. A sense of need is the spring of desire. Time is. Don't look at the clock, but it's almost noon. Um, I haven't eaten today. I cannot eat before I preach. Uh, My body needs food. Right now, I'm hopped up on caffeine. That's the only thing that keeps me going. Um, I often don't get food on Sundays until two or three or four, just because of all the stuff that's going on. But that growing need for food gives me a growing desire and hunger and passion for food. The other day, I saw Melissa, I was like, I gotta go. I have to go eat. Uh, and so then eventually, it gives me this, this need, gives me a single minded, all consuming passion to meet that need. In the same way, spiritual need arouses spiritual desire. Are you aware of your great spiritual needs? Are you aware of your sin and of your helplessness? If you are, you will then greatly grow in your desire for Christ. If you do not desire Christ, part of it must be that you do not yet fully see your great spiritual need. One of the best ways that you can know what is actually important to a person is to find out where they feel needy. And counseling, where does this person feel need? Where do they feel lack? Where's something that they don't have that they feel like they need? Values become desires. Desires become demands. And then demands get expressed as needs. What, what What is, honestly, if you're telling me, what is it that you think that you need? Because that goes a really long way in telling you what you love. Do you, like Paul, feel this need and desire for resurrection power because of your awareness of your remaining sin? Well, that can show you that you are growing in your knowledge and love of Christ. Because to know Christ is to be like Christ. I love John 10 where Jesus describes himself as the good shepherd. What's so good about this shepherd? Verse 11, he lays down his life for the sheep. The shepherd dies for the sheep. The king dies for the servants. Jesus dies for us. He's good. Verse 14, I'm the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Verse 27, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. Or he says in John 14, 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Of course we will, obviously. Not perfectly, sin remains, but as we long to know him, we long to be like him and his law, his commandments. Those tell us what he is like in all of his goodness. So as we long to know him, we at the same time long to grow in keeping his commandments, in obeying and following him. This is how John tells us that we can know that we know. 1 John 2.3, and by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. And it's because these commandments are not burdensome. They're good. They're good. They express to us what he's like. They protect us from things that separate us um, from him. We've got to get this mindset, and it's not helped by so many pastors who preach the law so poorly. We preach it as this awful, terrible, horrible thing. We know the law is a gift of God's grace. That tells us what he's like and tells us what pleases him and honors him of course we don't keep the law to be saved that was never the point of the law we can't but it points us to christ and our need for a savior because we can't keep the law and then once we have been saved we see the goodness of that law where god is showing us what he is like his commandments are good and so As we keep those increasingly by the Spirit, we become good, we become more like him, and then we can know and love him more and more. And that's what Paul wants, to be more like the one who is of surpassing worth to him, so that he can even better know the one who is of surpassing worth to him. Paul is entirely Christ-consumed. Are we entirely Christ-consumed? Could we say with Paul that our desire is to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified? And we get so confused and caught up in secondary things. Those things aren't bad, but are they coming under this first umbrella that we exist to know Christ? Everything else flows from that. That is Paul's all-consuming desire. And he knows that to better know him, he needs to be like him. And to be like him, he needs the power of his resurrection. A sanctifying, making us righteous, making us like Christ power. We want to be like those we most love. Do we want to be like Christ? What a gift that we've been given in our union with Christ. In our participating, our sharing, our communion with him. Remember verse nine. Paul has just said that his desire is to be found in him. Right, believers are those who have been so spiritually united to Christ that it's as if we are in him and he in us. Thus, whatever he does, he does for us. Whatever he does, we participate in. We share in all that he does. Listen to all these things Paul says uh, that we share with him in. I'm just going to run through them quick. Romans eight seventeen. We were made co-heirs with him. Same verse, 8.17, we are glorified with him. Colossians 3.1, we reign with him. 2 Timothy 2.12, we reign with him. Colossians 2.13, we were made alive with him. Colossians 2.12, we were raised with him. But if we were raised with him, that implies something else, which we just read. Romans 6.6, 6, we were crucified with him. Romans 6, 8, we died with him. Romans 6, 4, we were buried with him. If we were raised with him, we must have died with him. And if we died with him, we also must then suffer with him. Romans 8, 17, we suffer with Christ. Point number three, to know resurrection power is to die. We've started looking at this so we can be quicker here. Go back to verse 10. We've talked a lot about being like him and needing the power of the resurrection to do that. But I skipped some key words so far. What else does Paul want? That he may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. What in the world? Paul here is expressing desire for suffering. Desire to share suffering. How do we understand that? Well, the word share helps us a bit. In the Greek, it's our word koinonia. I remember that word, communion, community, fellowship, sharing. But here in the Greek, it's not a verb there. It's not to share. It doesn't say that. Paul doesn't add another verb. To know in verse 10 is kind of the verb for the whole thing. He wants to know him. He wants to know the power of his resurrection, and he wants to know the fellowship of his suffering. So the King James gets this verse a little bit better. He says, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable unto his death. So why would Paul want to know suffering? Well, because of what we've just talked about, again, in some way, it must be that in knowing suffering, he knows that he could better know Christ. To know Christ is to be like Christ. To be like Christ is to suffer. Jesus warned us about this. John 15 20. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Paul agrees. 2 Timothy 3.12, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. There will be persecution. There will be suffering in the Christian life. This is not your best life now. This is not come to Jesus and everything will get easier. This is come to Jesus and everything may get harder, but it's okay. Because knowing him is of surpassing worth. Because knowing him Is life. And so whatever we have to lose to gain him will be ultimately and eternally worth it. That's why he goes on in verse 11. Look at 11. I almost gave you a whole sermon on 11. We're not going to do it. He says that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. People get confused about this verse sometimes. Wait a second. Is is he not sure? No, he's not expressing uncertainty, but he's recognizing difficulty Remember, I'm making the case that he's not talking about his future bodily resurrection. That is safe and secure. That is guaranteed by the resurrection of Christ. He is still there about in that verse 11 talking about the same thing he's talking about in verse 10. He's talking about his sanctification that by any means possible he could become more like Christ. Romans 6, resurrection. Any means, even suffering. Even death. Remember, that's what Paul would have chosen were it up to him, he told us. Chapter 1, verse 23. He says, my desire is death. I mean, how foreign is that to us? Think about it. Why are we so scared to die? Think about it. Sounds like a stupid question. Uh, Why are we so scared to die? Why? We're we're working on praying upstairs. We're, We're starting small groups this week. We're going to be praying together. We're trying to kind of intentionally start to shape our prayers to be a little bit more like Paul's prayers. Why are so much of our prayers focused on physical health, which is ultimately about avoiding death? Now, of course, death is the great enemy. Death is unnatural. Death is horrible. But we know that in Christ, death is transformed for the believer. Death becomes for us not great loss, but great gain. Death for 90-year-old long-time suffering Mr. Charles in Christ was not loss, but was great gain for Mr. Charles. That's why Paul could honestly say that his preference would be death. That sounds somewhat morbid and backwards to us, but Paul meant it, and he said it, and he said it under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, so he, he can't be wrong. Why are we, then, so scared to die? Well, it's maybe because, as Alistair Begg has said, that we've got a sneaking suspicion that what we've got waiting for us on the other side, on this side of death, is actually maybe better than what awaits us on the other side of death. Maybe we think that this is actually better than what God has for us there. Maybe we love what we've got here a little bit more than whatever God has for us there. Because death actually gets us there and gets us to him in Christ. Paul doesn't seem to have that same fear or that same up. He actually believes that knowing Christ is infinitely worth it, even at the cost of his own life, even at the cost of suffering. Plus, if that suffering can also become a tool to even make him more like Christ and thus to make him able to know and love Christ more, Paul's in. For those who are in Christ, suffering is part of the plan. Suffering is part of God's plan. It is part of God's good and gracious purpose to make us more like Christ, to conform us to the image of His Son. That's why Paul is okay with prison. That's why he's writing the letter of joy from prison. That's why he's okay with persecution and with suffering. He knows what it ultimately is and what it's ultimately doing. That's why you don't ever see Paul crying and complaining about his circumstances. And so, every time we do cry and complain, every time we grumble about our circumstances, every time we choose sin instead of righteousness, do you know what it is that we're really doing? And here's the offer that we so regularly reject every time we choose sin. You can be like and be with God. yeah no thanks. I'm good. in those terms? what? Because as we've seen, listen, this is what God has specifically told us he's doing. That's why He saved us. That's why He's making us. that's what He's making us. and He's promised that everything he does and everything that comes into your life, Everything that happens to you is something that he does in some form or fashion, either directly or indirectly. He ordains it all. He is sovereign over us. He has promised, though, that he is doing all of it to bring about our good, which is to make us like his son, which is ultimately to make us like him because his son is the image of the invisible God, the exact imprint of his nature. Guys, God is making us like God. He's not making us God. Let's let's be clear on that. He will always be the creator. We will always be the creature. And that will never change. But this good and gracious creator made us to be good and godly creatures that image him and reflect him and that are like him. God is making you like him. Eh, No thanks. Foolish. And stupid are we in our sin, in our complaint about our mildly difficult circumstances. Thank God that he is more committed to his plan than we are. Thank God that he who begins a good work in us will be faithful to complete it. But it's because of that stubborn, stupid sin that remains that suffering will be involved. God loves us too much to leave us in our sin. Parents, if you love your children, you will discipline them, and you will not let them stay and wallow and grow in their sin. The Proverbs say you hate your kids if you let their sin go, and you do not discipline them. God loves us too much to leave us less than he designed us to be. And so he ordains and allows suffering into our lives as one of his sharpest and most effective tools of sanctification and change Like a master sculptor who, who chisels and cuts away the excess stone to reveal the perfect form underneath. God chisels and cuts away the excess, the sin, anything that is not like him to reveal the perfect form underneath his very own image. So then Paul can say that he will happily share his sufferings, even his death, to become like him. True knowing includes a desire to be like. And because of our sin, a desire to be like him will include with it suffering and death. Death to self and death to sin. Guys, I want to convince you that it's so good and it's so worth it. I joke a lot about balut. Balut. Most of you know what balut is. Uh, It's the Filipino delicacy. I don't know why it's called a delicacy. But if you don't know what it is, it's a fully formed chicken embryo that you suck out of the egg and then you chew it up, beak and bones and feathers and everything. I won't eat it. Uh, that would be real suffering. <laughs> it would. It's gross. But, but imagine if Bill Gates walked in that door and offered me a billion dollars to eat one little chicken embryo. Hey, two bites of gagging gooey grossness for a billion dollars. One minute of misery for a lifetime of security. I could actually pay for the education and weddings of my four little girls. Right? I'd never have to worry about money again. An entire life of blessing for one minute of suffering. Can you imagine if to that offer I said, no thanks, Bill. I'm good. What utter foolishness that would be. Balut, Disgusting. No thanks. Balut for a billion dollars. Done. I'm in. That's Paul. That's exactly what he's saying. Go read 2 Corinthians 10. We don't have time. Go read 2 Corinthians 10 to see how much Paul suffered. No thanks. But for Christ, done. I'm in, Paul says. Because he knows he is of surpassing worth is infinitely worth more than a billion dollars. All of that suffering, Paul could actually call light and momentary, not because it was insignificant, but because of the eternal weight of glory that it was preparing him for. You mean this helps me know Christ? This makes me more like him, the one who is infinitely beautiful and infinitely valuable? Where can I sign? To know Christ is to be like Christ. To be like Christ requires sanctification. Suffering is part of sanctification. God is making you more like the one that you most love. And who are we to complain about how he, in his perfect wisdom, does it? I want to look like what I love. And since what I desire to love above all else is Jesus Christ, what I desire to look like above all else is Jesus Christ. Christ, and we're seeing how that happens. Suffering is part of the equation. Suffering is a tool God uses to shape and mold and strengthen us. But think back to the illustration of couples looking alike at the beginning. Think that, remember, their, their communion together results in their conformity. As they look at one another, they become like one another. We become what we behold we start to look like what we look at and that's 2 Corinthians 3:18 listen to 2 Corinthians 3:18 and we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another see that's ultimately how it happens that's how we change the sight of Christ is a transforming sight. Have you ever just been captured and stunned and stopped in your tracks by just something stunning or something beautiful, a sunset or a great work of art or a great piece of music, something that just grabs you and you're, oh, and it gets you and grabs you and changes you. This is that to infinity. And the sight of Christ is a transforming sight. We, we look to live. We behold to become. So look If you say you believe in him, then look to him. Make seeing him with the eyes of faith your one all-consuming passion. Never stop considering the all-surpassing worth of knowing Christ. Make your pursuit of him your aim above all else. Make faithfulness to him your aim above all else because Paul says he is worth above all else. So whatever it is, Whatever is required, whatever helps us to gain Christ, Amen. Sign me up. To know Him is to be like Him. So pray that God, by His Spirit, through His Word, would make you more like Him. Pray that He would grow in you a great love for Jesus Christ and a great conformity to Jesus Christ so that we can be like Christ and so better know and love Christ. Make us like him so that we can better love him. him. That's what's involved in knowing Christ. If you would, bow with me, let's close with a word of prayer. Father, I'm so thankful for your word. I'm so thankful for the promises you have made about your word. So thankful that you have told us that it does not and it will not and it cannot return void. So Father, I know and believe that whatever it is that you desire to accomplish with your word this morning, it will happen and you will do it. So Father, work through your word. Father, show us the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus as Lord. Father, for those you have saved, for those you have made uh, pure in heart, we pray that uh, through the eyes of faith, you would help us and enable us uh, to behold Christ, uh, to see Christ now. And I pray that as we behold his glory, that you would shape us and transform us and make us more like him. Father, then as we become even more like him, I pray that you would use that to help us to love him and know him. Even more. I pray that that blessed cycle of looking and becoming and then being like and then looking and loving and becoming will just continue on until Christ returns. Father, we want to know him. We want to know the power of his resurrection. Father, we want to become like him. Help us, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen.